indeed we can look and wait for his soon appearing, which could happen at any moment. I invite you to turn in your Bible to the Gospel of John. We are turning to the next chapter, chapter 18. I reluctantly left chapter 17. I didn't overturn every stone that, that was there, and I've left a few more for you. So I do encourage you to consider meditating on and thinking about John 17. It would be very beneficial to you. But now we move really into a darker section, if you will, chapters 18 through 20. Go through what we would call the Passion Week. That would be the suffering of Jesus Christ. It begins with his betrayal and arrest, which we'll deal with today to some degree. I'll see what we'll be able to get through. It is a narrative after all, so we're going to continue this story all the way through his resurrection in chapter 20. And the book concludes, and then, like a good preacher, he's got one more thing to say. So you have chapter 21 on the end, and I look forward to all of that. This section here that deals with the betrayal of Jesus, his arrest, is found also in the parallel Gospels, and they can be helpful if you're reading along to be able to fill in the rest of the story, if you will, Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22. I'll reference some text from there from time to time. But there are four Gospels, right? And they aren't identical. They have a purpose and a theme. A little differently than how we would normally think of a narrative of an account we often think in, from our Western mindset, well, we have um, a chronological mindset, if you will, one to see how things progress and the details should be essentially the same. That's not so with the gospel writers. That's not the point. We wouldn't have four if, we, if that's what we needed. Instead, the gospel writers have a tendency to have an overarching theme, and that's helpful when you read it. I'm not saying it's exclusive, but there is an overarching theme that they have. And typically Matthew, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, it portrays Christ as king. I'm not suggesting the other Gospels don't. I'm just saying that's his big emphasis. And hence it begins with his genealogy showing his rightful Davidic lineage here to um, to be the king of uh, the nations, king uh, in following King David. In Mark, if you read that gospel, it doesn't have the genealogy, but it focuses much more on the humanity of Christ in his suffering. He's called the Son of Man, but that's not a human title. That's actually a divine title. So again, I'm not suggesting that they leave out any of that. It's just his emphasis is much more on suffering. Luke, Luke would be the longest of the Gospels. And Luke emphasizes really what we talked about today in Psalm 67. And that is that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, of all nations, every tribe, every people, every tongue, Christ is the Savior. 
Now we come to the Gospel of John where we're at and its distinction, you'll notice as we read through, it emphasizes the fact that Jesus is indeed the supreme God of the universe. Jesus is Yahweh. That's the emphasis here. And so in John, it's going to emphasize his glory as God incarnate more so than the others. Got it? They're not leaving it out. It's just the bigger emphasis. In fact, in John 20 and verse 31, in the first conclusion of John, it mentions the purpose, these things that are written, and notice the phraseology carefully, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He is divine, Son of God, and he is indeed the Deliverer. That's the Christ. It's Christos in Greek. It is the word for Messiah in Hebrew. A recognition of this truth that Christ Jesus is Lord, God incarnate. For those that are outside of the faith, this gospel is written that you might come in, that you might truly believe. This gospel is written for those that are in Christ that they might grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ. So here it is, a gospel essentially for everyone. The application of this truth is quite extensive and and varied. I'm going to give you a few points along the way, some directions, but I encourage you to encounter the gospel yourself in a devotional meditation. And here's the question I would pose, simply this. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? By truly believing that, if that is the expression of your heart, you will have life in his name. If you have any doubt or concerns about that, I commend to you his word. Spend time in it. In fact, one of my ways of, of telling people about Christ is simply to ask them, go read the Gospel of John and ask, who is this? God is not hiding this information from you. Well, let's read this first section here, verses 1 through 11. 1 through 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he he and his disciples had entered. Now Judas, who had betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And so he asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So If you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I've lost not one. 
Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And so Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? I'm hearing some sort of feedback. A loop through our system. But in any case, all right. Um, let's go ahead then, if I can pull myself together, to pray over this text. I don't want to be distracted from it. Let us pray. Father, we do pray that you will give us insight to your word, that we may hear and heed indeed this word today. May it have a significant impact on all of your saints. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> Now, if you look at this text, the way I've carved it up here, we'll see what we can get through today. But in verse 11, he concludes with this section, shall I not drink this cup? The cup that he is talking about is the cup of God's wrath. Not a cup of blessing, but a cup of wrath. The just wrath that is to be poured out against all who are in rebellion against God. Jesus takes on that cup the way John portrays it to remind us one aspect of it. Yes, there will be great suffering. Yes, there will be great betrayal. Yes, there will be great hypocrisy. Uh, Torture will go on. Jesus Christ will die on the cross. All of that. But he is not doing that as a victim. He's doing so as a victor. And so drinking the cup of the fullness of God's wrath that is rightly deserved for you and me, Jesus Christ takes this on in a purposeful way. This is something that he is determined to do, and he takes this cup as a victor, not a victim. All of those present this evening, this Thursday evening, during this Passover season, they may have concluded at that time that Christ was just a victim. He is going to be betrayed by an insider, Judas, if you will. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be falsely accused. He's going to be beaten, tortured. There's an illegal trial that's going to go on. And in the end, he's going to be crucified. And the mob is now against him. The mob that was once for him in saying... Hosanna, that is, save us now, God, will cry out, crucify him. All of this, though, that transpires occurs because of the divine purpose and plan of God. God has planned this all along. We say in our confession, London Baptist of 1689, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever that come to pass. All of these events that are mentioned here have come to pass because God has purposed them. And notice one of the clue, again, this is just a statement and a phrase of what we observe in Scripture. If you notice here, Judas betraying him, this is done to do what? Fulfill his word. 
Nothing happens by happenstance, not even in your own life. <laughs> we can see this clearly here in the life of Christ. But I would expand that to say that all things are under his sovereign control. All unfolding events are an expression of God's decree in time. He has purposely planned it all along. And now it is a time for this very thing to unfold. Peter, who is here in the upper room, preaches a sermon, if you'll remember, shortly hereafter, with great courage at Pentecost, and he proclaims to the people of Israel in Acts chapter 2, 22. I'll read it for you. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as yourself as you yourselves know, remember, this is what Gospel of John leading up to chapter 13 was all about. Here's the ministry of Christ, the seven signs that he did, that John records specifically, he did many more, signs and wonders that God did through him. It is this Jesus then delivered up, verse 23, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was impossible for him to be held by it. Because he actually did no sin. He would not decay in the grave. It is a great working out of God's divine plan, including all of these events that surround it. The betrayal, the hypocrisy of Judas all along. This gathering then of these people here at this event when they want to arrest them. In all of this, Christ is not the victim. He's the victor. He's in charge. He has determined to drink this very cup of wrath. The cup of wrath which you, by the way, deserve. There's a song I, I'm not going to sing it for you, but <laughs> I'd like to, but I should have been crucified. I should have suffered and died. I should have hung on that cross in disgrace. But Jesus Christ, my Lord, took my place. God has planned this from the very beginning to drink this cup of wrath. Later on in the same sermon, Peter says, let the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. Not a victim, but Lord, that is Yahweh, demonstrating he indeed is God and he is Christ, not the victim, but the deliverer, the conqueror. These people involved in this narrative as we read it, however, are not dupes. They're doing really what they want to do from their own heart. They mean what they do for absolute evil. They hate God, they rebel against him, and they orchestrate this whole arrest and betrayal of Jesus Christ from their own heart 
their own initiative. God is not standing on their neck making them do what they do not want to do. He's allowing them to do precisely what they want to do. In theology, we call this the doctrine of compatibility. Men freely do what they want to do. But always remember this, they're always under a sovereign God. God is sovereign then. He is sovereign now. And people will freely do what they want to do. They will purpose evil in their heart and commit great evil. But be assured of this, that God has a purpose for all, even the evil in your own life. May hard to swallow. It may be painful. It was for Christ. I assure you, he was the suffering servant. Read more about it in the Gospel of Mark. It really hurt. He suffered great affliction. But God had a purpose. And this indeed is the greatest good for the salvation for all who would believe that indeed Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is indeed Christ, the Deliverer. The victor. John wants us to see that then in this narrative that it might otherwise be overlooked that all along God incarnate, Jesus Christ, is in control of the situation. The people that are involved in this, whether it's Judas or the soldiers that come along, the priests that are there, They think that they're orchestrating this all on their own initiative and under their own control. God has not abandoned the world and allowed the world to do whatever it wants to do. He is moving it towards a certain end. And that is that the glory of Christ would be seen. The glory of Christ would be known. This victor who will drink this cup of wrath for all who believe in him. And remember that then as we walk through the scene of the story, and I'll read some of it and point a a bit out here, but this overarching theme is going to be emphasized, and that is indeed Jesus is Lord, that he is God, and that he is the Savior, the Deliverer, the Christ. Notice how John is going to masterfully weave this into this narrative and look for those threads as we recount this chronology. Notice verse 1. Here, it, and, it, and by the way, when you read a narrative, it's sometimes it's helpful to kind of break it up in, in scenes, if you will. Little vignettes so you can get an idea because it doesn't include absolutely everything, but he's taken a glance at different things along the way. And the first glance I found in verse 1 here is a presentation of Christ to his enemies. Notice the phrase here in verse 1 of chapter 18. It sets the time frame, and that is, when he had spoken. When he had spoken, then these events take place. This is a reference, this when he had spoken is this dialogue of private instruction that he has given to his disciples, really beginning uh, uh, chapter 14 and maybe some of chapter 13, all the way up to chapter 16. And then it is followed by this high priestly prayer in chapter 17. 
Jesus is in charge all along. None of this is going to happen until he's done giving the final instructions to his disciples, sending Judas out from his midst, and providing this high priestly prayer for his disciples. He's in control of all of the events leading up to this point. And so when he is done speaking, then these things will occur. His opponents have tried to stop him in vain. If you remember reading through the various Gospels, you'll remember many events. There's a time in which they wanted to push him off of a cliff, and yet he just walked through their midst. They couldn't stop him. There was a time they wanted to stone him. That means to kill him. They picked up stones, but they couldn't find him. He just walked away. Jesus is not concerned. He's not panicked that they're going to somehow interrupt his teaching of his disciples here at this critical moment when he must give them final instructions before his betrayal. He has this private meeting. He's not worried about getting broken into. They're not going to break into it because he is ultimately in control. He is following a timeline of his own. Look back to one chapter, chapter 17. He speaks of this timeline as his hour. (coughs) It's that specific, beloved. In verse 1 of chapter 17... After he had finished teaching him, that's the spoken words there, then he lifted his eyes up to his prayer, right? Father, and notice what he says, the hour has come. He's on his own timeline. Now is the time. The hour to do what? To suffer? Oh, he calls it glorification. Again, John's emphasizing the glory of Christ in even in this time of great betrayal and suffering and death, in which the Son would glorify him. He has given him, notice this, authority. He's not standing here in weakness, which somebody could capture him and control him. No, he is standing here as a victor who is going to drink this cup of wrath on purpose. This is an hour of triumph, not an hour of tragedy. Prior to this, Jesus had said, my hour has not yet come. Because he is in control of every moment, even this very day. Well, when he's finished, he's finished teaching. He's finished praying, and then note here, back to our text, it says that he is going out with his disciples. This is an intentional act on his part. He's intentionally getting ready to engage in the confrontation of those who would execute him. He is intentionally exposing himself to harm's way. Now, 
He is in control all along, and you might think, okay, well, he's in this private room. They don't know where he's at. Well, now he is going out for this very hour, and he knew what the stakes were. In fact, his disciples, who he said, come on out with me, and they're going out in the open to be exposed around Jerusalem, if you will. They know the danger, too. If you want to find that, I'll read it for you. You can look back a few chapters in chapter 11. Here's a section where Jesus, again, is going to Bethany just outside of Jerusalem in Judea. The folks are uh, the religious leader of the day. They were, they were intentionally uh, against, hostile towards Jesus. And here his disciples are with him in chapter 11. This is the chapter that deals with the resurrection of Lazarus. And Jesus is going to go and take his disciples there. And he tells them in verse 7 of chapter 11, let us go to Judea again, to that region, if you will, around Jerusalem. His disciples said to him, Rabbi, the, the Jews, that is the religious leaders of, the, of Judaism, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And, and you're going there again? In other words, they wanted to kill you here. Now you're going to go right in the midst? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? Can I tell you this? He's controlling every single hour of the day. You don't need to panic. Oh, you must do things that are responsible and right and good, but in the end, do you understand that Jesus Christ is, there, is Lord and he is Christ? Now, if, he, if you do not recognize that he is Lord... And that he is Christ, you should be in great, great fear and panic. Absolutely. But come to him. Recognize who he is. Jesus' response, he says, If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of the world. Who is the light of the world? It is indeed Jesus Christ. And this section here is quite interesting. Here we have Thomas, which we'll pick up again. He's often called Doubting Thomas. We'll deal with that when we come to that text post-resurrection. But in any case, here you get a glimpse of Thomas, though. It's not a wavering person. Maybe this might challenge some of our thoughts about calling him Doubting Thomas because here's a pretty courageous statement he makes in verse 16. Thomas called the twin said to his fellow disciples, well, let us also go that we might die with him. He's not saying it in frustration. He knows to follow Christ means to pick up your cross and follow him, and it may cost your life. Can I tell you this right now? Do you want to follow Christ? It may cost you everything. It may cost you your physical life. It may cost you your material possessions. It may cost you other things that you might have of value. If that is, too, if that is more important to you, walk away. Leave. You're not following Christ. This demonstrates the affections of his heart that in this circumstance, Christ said, let's go and we'll go with him. Even if it costs us our life. This is his allegiance to Christ. I think we 
can rightly infer him leading them out then into the open around Judea, which in Jerusalem, in which he was. Back to our text here in, in chapter 18. Leading them out, they knew what the stakes were. They knew where, what exposures that they had. But they were not going to stumble because they were with the light. They were with Christ. Christ wanted them to be with him at this time. And I think I can infer from this text, you may agree, but ultimately, or disagree, but that's okay. Uh, I won't push this too hard. But him taking them out exposes them, of course, to danger, which will find that he will protect them in this circumstance. But it also provides a great witness, an eyewitness, to all that happened. A, very, uh, a, a, um, a verified account of what happens. Jesus isn't alone. He is with his inner circle, his disciples. They will see. They will see the betrayal and the rest by wicked men, including one of their own, who has turned, who they really don't know. Uh, and we'll look at that text in a second. That they, they really don't know that the, he has turned yet. That is Judas. But they will find out, indeed, who that man is. There'll be eyewitnesses of it. There'll be eyewitnesses of these wicked men. They will see Jesus then both as a lamb and a lion. In both settings. So the disciples go out with him. They're exposed to danger. In chapter 18 it identifies a, a geographical place. This Brook Kidron. I think this does help root this narrative in, in the historical reality of where and what was going on. But actually in addition to that particularly for these that were familiar with the Old Testament. Just to say this Brook Kidron, it isn't just a bottom section there between um, uh, the Mount Olives and the place that they were at. It is also a ravine that was familiar. A lot of things happened there. MacArthur mentions in Scripture, this Kidron Valley had been part of another scene of betrayal and treachery. David fled Jerusalem after Absalom's rebellion. You can find that in 2 Samuel chapter 15. Asa is noted there in 1 Kings 15. Josiah, 2 Kings 23. Hezekiah, 2 Chronicles 29. They had burned idols there in connection with the various reforms. This was a familiar geographical place and one that smacked a of betrayal and in our text here Jesus crosses over that very ravine. By this time it would have been perhaps an empty dry bed and there may have and some assume also drainage from Jerusalem from the blood of the Passover which you don't think might be much but by this time historians tell us it may have been as many as a quarter of a million lambs. That's a lot of blood shed, a lot of blood that would drain, go down into this particular valley and here you have Jesus Christ and his disciples crossing that very brook of betrayal. Our text says that he goes into a garden 
And you know the garden, don't you? You've heard it from the other Gospels. It is the Garden of Gethsemane. It is a garden on the other side of this ravine. It's on the slopes of Mount Olive, where there would have been olive groves. Obviously, why they called it Mount Olives. Gardens, if you will, that encompass the various people who are preparing that crop. It's the Garden of Gethsemane, we find from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It means oil press. John's point in mentioning all of this is setting a stage for the next scene. And I hope you see it. Jesus is not hiding. He's not running away. He's going to a very familiar place. It is a place that has some seclusion that is away from the crowds, and we'll see why in a second why that's important. There aren't huge crowds around, just his own disciples and the crowd that will come to seek him. But it's not a secret hiding place. The text will reveal for us this is a well-known place. He isn't hiding. He isn't hiding. He has presented himself as a victor to drink this cup of wrath. Back to our text in verse 2 of chapter 18. You'll see that very plot unfold. It mentions Judas, who betrayed, betrayed him, note here, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. Judas is mentioned here. He's highlighted among those that come out to arrest Jesus. It was just a short time ago that Judas was disclosed for his hypocrisy. Not by the disciples. They didn't know about it. But by Jesus. Remember, John is going to demonstrate that even here, Jesus know, this is not a surprise that Judas is now standing before him to betray him because Jesus knows this all along. Let me walk through a few texts if you want to see this. John chapter 13, just a few chapters back. Here, in G- here, Jesus is washing the disciples' feet here, early in this upper room. And he gives them a statement about how this relates to spiritual cleansing. In verse 11 of chapter 13, he doesn't speak to all of them, for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. This is prior to all of this. This is prior to sending Judas away. Here Jesus is in the upper room and Jesus knows that he is not spiritually clean. And why? Verse 18 of the same chapter. I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen. That is chosen for life. But... The scriptures would be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. This is the betrayal. This is hypocrisy. This is fulfilled from scripture. Did Remember how he began? That God has ordained all that is going to come to pass. This has been not only spoken of by Christ, but written down in holy scripture way before it would even happen. It will happen. This is what we mean by the ordaining of God. Verse, and it says, verse 19, I'm telling you this 
Now, he's in the upper room, right? Telling before his disciples, I'm 